scratch and smooth. Our special guest today has penned one of the most successful comedies in modern theatre, turned it into a film with Peter Sellers, and gone on to achieve much more with plays, TV scripts, a musical about wartime evacuees, and two sitcoms. Well, SNS Online caught up with Terence Frisby at his home in West London to find out more. I trained as an actor, and I, the minute I started acting was, um, I was at drama school when I saw John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, and I pretty well, literally, went home and started writing plays. He was the catalyst for me, he really was. I sort of worshipped at the shrine of John Osborne, and I played Jimmy Porter twice in rep, and I played, later on at the Royal Court, I played uh, in John Osborne's penultimate play, which was the huge amount of fun and finally got to know him and became friends. Tell us about your family background, parents etc, early days. My mother, when my father met her, she came from a family of musicians. She was brought up by three sisters, her mother was in Canada, and they were all musicians, her sister, her aunts, everybody. Um, violinist, cellist, double bassist, um, uh, and she played the piano. And in the 1920s, down in Brighton where she was, she was a drummer in a jazz band. Not a girl's band, a jazz band. Now, how many women in the 20s were drummers in jazz bands, eh? In this country, I bet there weren't many. And Dad was, um, worked on the railway, but he was an amateur boxer. Okay. And he was Southern Area ABA welterweight champion. Very early on, obviously the war interrupted uh, your childhood. What sort of age were you when you had to leave your family? I was seven, not quite eight. My brother was uh, 11. Um, and um, we went from southeast London to somewhere we didn't know where. It turned out to be Cornwall. And there we uh, were taken from the group of children in the school. They picked us out, you know, like sort of all over, all of that one, all over this one. You're come on, my lovely, and um, it, it was a Welsh couple that picked me and my brother out, and uh, took us home, and they became our second parents. I mean, they just were. We were the luckiest evacuees in the world. It sounds like it, it worked out very well for you, because I know not everybody had that experience. Yeah. Well, I wrote about it in Kisses on a Postcard. Kisses on a Postcard, actually, the title um, comes from an action of my mother's. My father worked on the railway, and uh, he, he'd said to us before, I, I know where you're going, boys, but I can't tell you it's a wartime secret. He didn't have a clue. <laughs> uh, and my mother, uh, this was to give us confidence, and my mother said to us the night before we went, she said, we'll have our own code, our own secret code like the Secret Service. And we said, what's that? And she said, well, it's this. There's a postcard here, and on it was written, Dear Mum and Dad, arrive safe and well, everything fine, love Jack and Terry. And she said, if it's horrible, you put one kiss and I'll come and take you straight home. If it's all right, you put two. And if it's nice, you put three. And <laughs> um, we thought this was absolutely brilliant. And with our secret code, off we went. I don't remember feeling frightened or nervous for a minute. My mother walked us down to the station in Welling and there were about 500 children on the platform, <laughs> screaming, yelling children with their mums there. 
And I don't remember seeing tears at all. There must have been some, but I don't remember it. And lots of smiling mums waving goodbye to their kids. They all went off the whole school, my brother's school, and they took the younger brothers and sisters with them. My mum told me many years later that she went home and sobbed her heart out. Mm. Of course she did. Mm. So did all the others. Mm. And uh, we were spent all day in that train going west. And finally we got out and we were marched up the road to a, a school where they uh, gave us a, a glass of squash and a bun. And then we were put into buses, charabangs, and we went out, fanned out from the town of Liscard, which is where we were, to this tiny village of Dogwalls. And there we stood in the middle of the school hall and they came along and picked us out. And this couple picked Jack and me and she put a hand on my head, I remember. I can remember this as clear as clear. She said, yeah, I love this one, yeah. And I said, ow, that's my hair. I had a lot of blonde hair then. People were always ruffling my hair and I hated it. And she, and she said, yes, could do with a cut too. And I said, you've got to take my brother. And she said, got to? I said, and, I, and my brother said, yes, yes. Mum said, and we said, yes, Mum said you've got to. So she looked at us both and she said, well, if your Mum said, that must be right, mustn't it? <laughs> and she took us both. Oh, it's lovely. That's yeah. great. And outside um, was this tiny little man, five foot tall, and he was an ex-Welsh miner who had become a, a plate layer on the railway down there. He'd, he'd left the valleys in the depression of 1930s and got oh, work nice. in Cornwall. And they took us home outside Dob Walls, another mile and a half to a tiny hamlet called Double Boys. And there were these row of seven cottages. On the end one, they said, that's our place. And you, you, it was so small. I mean, we, we didn't come from a big house or anything, but you, how could you get people in there at all, you know? <laughs> and as we walked down the, beside the row of cottages, there was chickens in the run. There was a pig in the shed. We got in there, there was a cat on the sofa. There was a canary in a cage. There were all these fields around us with horses and um, cows and sheep and so on. And down below Double Boys was the Foy Valley with a big wood, a river and woods there, like a vast adventure playground it was. And all this was, we thought it was absolutely wonderful. But then we saw the very last thing. We went out from the house and just looked beyond. There was a fence and down in a cutting, completely hidden, was the main London to Penzance railway line and Double Boy Station, and my brother and I thought we'd died and gone to heaven. And we took the card and we covered it with kisses. <laughs> this is a family legend Wonderful. now, yeah, and, and we, we sent it, and my mum turned up a week later to make sure anyway. <laughs> so drama school, where did you study? Central. And who were your contemporaries? Well, um, in the year ahead of us, the two most famous ones, there were Vanessa Redgrave and Judy Dench. Wonderful. We, um, I didn't work directly with them because they were in a different group, but we all knew them, of course. In my lot, nobody that famous, really. Jeremy Kemp, who mm -hmm. made quite a name for himself. Uh, Ivor Danvers did a bit on quite a couple of long runs on TV. Jimmy Bolan was in the year behind. Right. And so was um, James Fox. Right, okay. So, you know, a good crop of people. So, I mean, you studied as an actor, but um, the directing, the writing, was that just a very natural progression? I was 22 when I went to drama school, nearly 23, and I had left school when I was 16. I should have gone to university, but didn't. Um, it, it wasn't quite as straightforward in those days as it is now. I wanted to get a job as a journalist and then go into politics. 
Right. Um, uh, uh, be a political uh, start off. And I couldn't get a job as a cub reporter on a local paper anywhere because the NUJ rate in those days was £2.50 a week mm. and I couldn't live on it away from home. Right. So I was unable to do that and so I ended up working in the rag trade for six years and I drifted because we had conscription but then I never went and I drifted on. And finally I bumped into this guy, Ivor. Should I tell you that little story? Yeah, no, please do. Okay. He had been a boy actor um, and had played in the West End and on tour and in there was a film of Dick Barton's Special Agent. Do you remember that? He was the boy wonder in it. You know, he always had a little boy assistant or something. And so he'd had a bit of a... Little Jimmy. Or or similar. Whatever, yes. (laughs) But uh, he'd been unable to make the bridge the gap between being a child actor and being being an adult. And he filled my head with stories of theatre and things, which I quite liked. So I went up to him one day and I said, Ivor, you want to be um, an actor again and you can't get into it. And I'd quite like to try. Uh, So why don't we take the audition for Central? Good idea, he said. Wonderful. Yes, let's do that. He said, you, you've got a good head on your shoulders. You'll make a good stage manager. Drumming. <laughs> 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 right, yes. <laughs> anyway, we, um, we went out and got the entrance forms. Right. Pa- pound each. One, we got one to Rada and one to Central. Two pounds each. You only earn ten pounds a week then. So we both got into Central. And I must say, it's the best thing ever. If I'd gone on to become a journalist and then a Labour MP... Imagine being a Labour MP through the years of Thatcher. Yes. What a life. (laughs) We believe that people should be able to stand on their own two feet. So give me that stick. I suppose in the next four four years I paid well over 100 parts, well over half of them leads, and got a grounding in acting such as... um, nobody can get nowadays because the absolutely. system doesn't exist. Yes, absolutely. And while I was doing that, I wrote my first play. So tell us about your first play. Nobody wanted it. Oh. <laughs> uh, I finished it in 59, and I got it on, in the end, at Guildford Rep in 62. Mm-hmm. They got it on there because um, the Arts Council gave them a little grant, a guarantee against loss. There were four Arts Council readers, I saw their reports. Three said no. And one said, well, there's a certain sort of honest um, sincerity about this play, and I think it's worth a showing. So on the vote of that one guy, it then opened in Guildford Rep on the Monday night, and on the Tuesday morning, we'd got uh, notices in the Times and Telegraph like you have never read in your life. Oh, that's extraordinary. I was compared to Miller, Osborne, Ibsen, Chekhov. Um, I mean, I really, really, they were fantastic. Uh, and the the, uh, the Times noticed that, as for Mr. Frisbee, if he can go on writing like this, he may be, well be what the British theatre has been waiting for. Oh, that's a wonderful start. Yeah. Outside. As I say, all, all, all these comparisons. And we had six West End producers bidding for it. The, the theatre sold it to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about what the play was about. The Subtopians. Oh, it was a, a photographic picture of my own background. It was about a boy trying to break from suburban dreariness. It's all terribly 50s, terribly social realism. A bit of a kitchen sink vibe. Not a kitchen nor a sink inside. Oh, okay. It all takes place in the living room. Had French windows and everything. <laughs> and um, Bill Fraser played my my father in it. I call him my father, the, the father, but it was. I didn't realise what a terribly accurate picture it was of my own family life. And it was quite cruel. I was quite cruel to my parents and I think I should be ashamed of myself over that in some ways. 
but that's the way it was anyway. And, um, were they around to see the play? Or? Oh, yeah, they were there on the first night. Hold, I tried to pretend. Oh, it's just something I've got going on over at Guildford. You don't want to see it. They had <laughs> they had gone all around the country watching me act. Did right. I imagine they weren't going to go and see my play? Yes. Exactly. And then when I turned round in the first interval, my father was a very difficult and verbose man, and he was. I'm, I'm sorry to say, he drove people away. He was such a bore, and he, he did. And my mother was sort of sitting under layers of armour plating, and I portrayed that on the stage. Right. And when the f curtain came down on the first act, the audience sort of almost went, because ah, they all recognised their own environment yes. and all the rest of it. And it, was, it, was, it was more of a sigh than a round of applause. Yeah. And I turned and walked up the aisle of the theatre, and there they were sitting there, and they were holding hands, which I've never seen do that before. You gave them a bit of cognitive therapy, though. Maybe. And, and at the end of the evening, my dad said, in the way he did it, so that's how you see a son, is it? I see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my mother was just sort of said nothing. And so I raised a thousand pounds to take it into the arts theatre for a month. Mm -hmm. And of that thousand pounds, I got a hundred pounds from each of the six producers who said they were going to do it originally. Right. And then three hundred, another hundred from two other people, and three hundred from my mother. Her life savings. Wow. And we wow. Went in. Yes, quite. We went in and. All the notices said, yes, it's, it's sort of very good, but we've seen all this before. And this was now 64, remember. Beyond the Fringe had happened. Joe Orton had happened. We were into a completely different uh, style of thing. Satire had arrived. Could you have foreseen that, the, the change being so quick? Well, Michael Codgen, when he saw it two years before at Guildford, he was one of those who hadn't bid, and he'd said then, it's very good, but it's too late. So we got these Com-C, com notices, very good, but... So we lost our thousand pounds in total. In fact, we lost one thousand and fifty. And um, Michael Codron said to me, um, "Told you it was too late. Told you so." Yeah. He said, uh, "At the end of this little interview we have, and I was moaning about things, he said, bring me your next play and I'll do it.'" And the next one was, "There's a girl in my soup." Girl in my soup. How did that start for you? What were you trying to say? Because it, it's very much sort of championing the female role. It was, was it sort of a comment on society at the time and, and the permissive 60s and London society? I'd written one play for TV, which was anti-capital punishment. I'd written another one about disestablishment of the Church of England. I'd written a film script, which never got made, anti-the-bomb. And I was into all these left-of-centre, really serious things. And I went in one day to see a, a script editor in the BBC about my next play, because they'd like the last one, Guilty. It was called, and it, it went out, my first TV play, went out on a Sunday night, and there was this new pop group on the Palladium show against it, and they happened to be called The Beatles. And I think three people in the world watch my play, and the rest of the world watch The Beatles. It's lovely to be here on the Palladium. And, yeah. and the three people were my mother, the head of drama at BBC, and not me, my wife and I watched The Beatles. Right. Yeah. So you watched The Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were, well, I'd seen my own play. I didn't yes, anyway, as a result of that, the head of BBC sent this memo round saying, this play the night before, this is what popular drama should be, it's got all these things in it and issues, and it's just dealing with the world today. I think he was just defending himself because he must have had the worst viewing figures yes, in history. <laughs> anyway, so I went in and I said, I, can, I was given a clean sheet of paper, I can do what I like. Mm. So I was there with the script. I was thinking, what should I do something about it? He said, oh, come on, Terry. He said, all these, all these piles of scripts he got on all these serious subjects. Give us a romantic comedy. 
So I said, oh, I couldn't do that. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write an anti-romantic comedy. Fine, he said. That's how Soup was born. Right. Just as simple as that. Okay. And I very early on had the picture of the girl in my mind and the man, this man who was in his 40s, mm. slightly over the hill, yeah. very um, establishment, successful, and the girl just off the street, you know, mm. kid, and the conflict between those things. Mm. And, and she was the wit character and he was the fop character. Mm. She, she was mm. the clever one and he wasn't. In the first draft I wrote, he was a lawyer. Mm. I was looking for an establishment figure. You see, a mm. randy lawyer. And I, when I'd finished this first draft for TV, mm. I took it in, and the script editor who had ordered it from me was changed to another one mm. called something Smith. I've forgotten his first name, but he became very well-known and, um, and, and right on, and another one of those left-of-centre mm. ones. And um, I took it in, and he read it and said to me, uh, I'm sorry, Terry, but this isn't for us now. I want serious plays about the bomb, about um, oh, <laughs> about capital punishment, about the church, all those things. He said, and I, I was, uh, by the time I took it in, I saw that I had written a West End play. I set off to write a TV play, and I saw, this is West End material. I'm, I sent the first draft of the stage play to my agent on the Wednesday, having spent years trying to get subtopians on. Uh, he phoned me up on the Friday, and I said to him, you can read this, but don't show it to anyone. It's mm. just a first draft. Mm. He phoned me up on the Friday and said, I've given it to Michael Codron. And I said, I told you not to show it to anyone. Mm. He said, well, it's, it's fine, Terry. I said, and on the Monday, Michael Codron phoned and said, I'll do it. And we played to Wolverhampton. Mm. Nobody laughed. Mm. And the mayor of Wolverhampton walked out, but his wife stayed. She wanted to see what happens. <laughs> and we went to Cardiff, I remember. I watched a matinee in Cardiff. And there were sort of a few laughs from the, at the funny business right. when somebody banged their eye on the door. A few nothing else. Nothing else. And then Nottingham, in one of the rewrite uh, times, that was the night that John Perry, who was Binky Beaumont's uh, partner and assistant, and they were, controlled half the theatres of London, right. they came up to see it to see whether they would take it in one of their theatres. And in the middle of Act Two, Donald cut into Act Three, then cut back again, missed out a whole chunk where he's supposed to have got knocked by the door and got a black eye. So he was walking around acting a black eye, which had never happened. And it was, it was incomprehensible. He went and locked himself in his dressing room afterwards. He was so upset. Perry went home. Michael Codron was, he was up in the air. There was in a hotel in Nottingham, there was Codron in one room, me in another, and the director in another. And um, <laughs> nobody was speaking to anybody. It was a war. So John Perry went home and said to Binky Bowman, Oh, the Globe, which is now the Gilgood, it'll keep the Globe warm for six weeks while we wait for the odd couple. After we played chess for three or four days, my chum and I, we came up with him being a TV gourmet, which was new then. It was a, it was a trendy thing then. I, I think every second person's a cook on TV oh, now, God, aren't yeah, they? Absolutely. Uh, so this is Donald Sendon, John Pertwee. John Pertwee. And... Barbara Ferris was the girl. Yeah. She was absolutely one. She got the Variety Club Best Newcomer of the Year, mm. both in London and on Broadway. Okay. And she was terrific. Mm. And jo John, well, I was lucky. They were a terrific cast. Yeah, absolutely. Everything, everything gelled. So let's go back to the influences that led you to write the play. Okay, you wanted to do an anti-romantic comedy. Mm. We have a woman in it who's a lot stronger than some of the female characters in some of those type of plays. It seems almost like sex and sexuality is used as a currency or a, 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 as a weapon in a way sometimes well, to uh, empower them. Well, the natural little sort of blonde dolly bird of the 60s, mm. you know, which is a, a, almost a cliche now, mm. and they were just coming along then, and... I, I did that, and she looked like the natural victim. Mm. 
the prey of of the of the seducer of the male thing, and the prey at the hunter. <laughs> but it, I mean, it does to me. Looking back on this, it does seem to be very much a sort of mirroring the, the times of the 60s and the permissive society and the pill and all the rest of it. And I think and hope. It caught all that, which yes. was... It, That's it what just, it, Yes, it just caught it, and it, it caught fire because of it. Mm. Um, we opened at the Globe with a £360 advance, which wouldn't have kept us on for one night, mm. and we ran for not quite seven years. Mm. Longest-running comedy then, up to then. Absolutely. And the same thing happened around the world. Mm. The one place that it wasn't... It was successful, but not successful enough, was in America, mm. where they insisted on having an American leading man... Mm. And they were wrong. They should have taken Donald. Um, and uh, they, you know, they, they, the, I can remember one um, Broadway producer saying to me when he saw Donald's performances, "I wouldn't have that faggot on my stage." And I said, "Donald? They don't come any straighter than Donald, for God's sake!" <laughs> and, and they just wouldn't have it. So we got Gig Young, who looked like a good idea, mm, but just well. thought he could walk through it grinning, smiling, and be lovely. But the play is about male vanity and pomposity, and the female pricking it. Mm. Whereas Gig Young was just nice and charming, mm. so you, the, the comedy never really fired. But it went, as I say, it went round the world. Everybody did it. I've been thinking about you I wish I could forget And I would if I thought that I should But not just here Darling so when did you get the call to adapt it as you know, a screenplay for the film, which ended up being with Peter Sellers and um, Goldie Hawn? Well, I, I wrote that quite soon, in the summer of 66, when the play opened in 67. And then I never heard a word for three years. Mm-hmm. And they went away and they cl- clearly hadn't liked it. Because I, I, I left most of the play in and then wrote all of the connecting scenes mm. between them. So how diff- just briefly, how, how difficult was that, adapting your own work? What I did with the producer was I said, look, I'm not sure what parts of the play to cut, but the director and I can decide that between us. I'd written films with a director before and, and was quite used and, and was happy to, to collaborate. So I said, I'm going to leave most of the play in, but a lot, obviously a lot of it's got to go, and these are the connecting bits I'll write which will make it work. And um, he said, that's fine, yes, do that, Terry. So because I did that, so what they got was a very long script. And all he said to me, real typical film, I read it, yes, it's long, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, three years went by, and suddenly I got a phone call from the Bolting Brothers. The whole project had been passed on to them to do with a four-picture deal with Goldie, and because Peter Sellers did his early English things with them, so he was happy with them, so the whole package was made up by Columbia. And when I went in to see Roy Bolting, who directed it, he'd got four scripts on the thing there, four scripts by four different well-known Hollywood screenwriters. And we sat down and we read through them all and there wasn't a usable line or thing in one of them. So after we'd gone through all this, he came back to my original one and we sat down and we edited it, which is what I'd suggested. Yeah. Meanwhile, they had spent more money on all those scripts than they had on, on, on my film rights, I think. <laughs> but if you miss me in the morning Let me know to give me warning and I'll be around to can I have another one, please? Yes, yes. Uh, why are you leaving just now? 
Did you think I was? I wasn't sure. I was just trying to keep one up on you for a bit longer. One up? I was looking for your name on the door. You mean you don't know my name? No. Nor who I am. Should I? <laughs> it's just that I was under the impression. Well, what is it then? What is it? <laughs> well, uh, I am Robert Danvers. <laughs> <laughs> How nice for you. Who am I? And were you happy with the casting? No. I don't. I don't oh. like the play. I don't. I, okay. I don't sorry. I. Oh. I don't like the film. Um, I've got nothing against either of our leading people, or the director. But Roy saw the whole thing. He was sixty then, and he saw the whole. He referred to Robert Danvers as a, that young man, you know. Whereas it wasn't. It was about that middle-aged man and that girl. And Goldie, this is a girl off the street. Just a girl. A, She's got to be pretty and attractive, but one of nature's aristos rather than any. And Goldie is now and always was a Jewish princess, isn't she? Uh, 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 she's a girl who used to be a rich man. You expect to see a rich man around Goldie. <laughs> this girl, she, so she was charming and lovely in it, but utterly wrong. And the whole the play is built on three legs. It's a three-legged stool. Battle of the sexes, battle of the generations, battle of the classes. Right, as soon as you've got an American in there, you've kicked away one of the legs. Mm, mm. Um, and Peter, um, who played the, um, the, obviously the male lead, he sort of was he, he was, he was not good on sex and being a leading man. Peter Sellers' talents lay in other directions. And uh, Roy, looking at it from the point of view of somebody older than the leading man, Goldie being wrong, the whole thing was wrong. And I call it a jolly romp with Goldie and Peter. Yeah. Got, there's no sign of what I would like. My Arabella, Cinderella, what does she do? She turns into a pumpkin up a stroke or two. You know she should have done it waiting back at midnight. Why, oh, why could she not get a thing right? <laughs> See, people talk about girl in my suit, that 60s farce. It's not a farce, it never was. But sex the, comedy. The, well, the, exactly. Well, the, see, the film drags it down, yeah. uh, in my view. People like it, but it's really, a, as I said, a jolly romp with mm. Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn had it on record that she found Peter Sellers rather weird to work with. I don't know right. what she meant by that. I don't think she was happy. No. No, he was weird to work with. He, he, he came up with some wonderful comic inventions and little moments in the film, mm. this, that, as Peter Sellers would, as mm. you expect, and they were funny. But the actual, I don't like the film. No. And Peter Sellers, it must be said, did need a back wax. Very much so. Need a what? A back wax. In the scenes when oh, he hasn't got his well, he hasn't got his top the on. I think wax. you know, I seriously, we don't want to see uh, we don't want to see that. And I'm sure he was advised in later films to to resolve those problems. <laughs> did you um get to go on set? Yes, I did. I, I, I did go on set and I met Goldie and I met Peter and I uh, struck a, a a temporary friendship. Um no, it was quite fun. We went out and had a meal a few times. Two lovely things happened, if I may. One, he gave a party at that famous Italian restaurant in Beecham Place, forgotten what it's called, doesn't matter. No. And Britt Eklund was there. Uh, he, and she was then his ex-wife. He'd got another one since then. But they, they were still chums and she'd got, she'd got their child. And Peter 
got hold of Brit with one arm and me with the other and said, oh, Brit, you haven't met uh, Terry Frisbee, have you? Who's written the play that I'm currently filming. And, you know, and Brit Eklund turned and gave me a smile such as you have never seen. She, and her hair was perfect, the skin was perfect, the eyes were bluer than blue. Her face, she just, you just sort of stared at her, sort of, uh, you know. <laughs> And I got this wonderful, utter, total attention for, I would say, all of two minutes and 50 seconds until she realised I was absolutely no, no use to her whatsoever and it was all turned off as though the light was... Oh, turned. no! She did make me laugh. <laughs> and she... I was, well, at least I've had two minutes of. Well, you seconds. had two glorious minutes. Yeah. Yeah, people would pay a lot of money for that. And <laughs> that is, that's what I say. It was, it was tremendous. I loved it. I just enjoyed the whole thing. And it was a, a switch had gone off in her head. Right. And well, the other thing that Peter and I did, we discovered that we'd both bebopped or jived in the same way. Oh. And so we did it together. Mm-hmm. And he used to take the girls' part because he was smaller than me, and he could do it. But, but, and we used, we used to we used to bebop in his um, do, doing the old early fifties type of dancing in his sitting room. I uh, is there any any uh, film of this? Oh, or? If, uh, if only, eh? Well, yes, quite. There's a girl in my suit won the Writers Guild of Great Britain Award in 1970 for Best British Comedy Screenplay, which is fantastic. Congratulations. But opinions were extremely polarised. I read a quite awful review in the New York Times. who didn't think much of it at all. But then, obviously, it was extremely successful as a film. Uh, not in America. It was successful, but not extremely successful. Okay. It, was pretty, okay. it was pretty successful here. And I have to say, I haven't read that one in the Times in New York, but I'm on his side. that's hilarious sorry that's the author speaking it's my (laughs) script and when we won the British best British comedy screenplay remember the opposition I think would carry on something or other and on the buses (laughs) (laughs) and they both did probably did better at the box office than we did right okay (laughs) right we'll we'll put that to bed now um I would like to see it as a play. I, I'm sure I, I can see it having its, its spiritual home on stage. A, ATG are at the moment uh, seeking to revive it, so you might have a chance of oh, seeing it. Okay. We, if, when we find the right leading man, we'll get a girl, because it'll be a big star for the man, and a star-making part, possibly, we yeah. hope, for the girl. Yes, so she wouldn't, be, wouldn't expect yeah. her to be a big name. Yeah. But um, we, we're looking for the right man at the moment. We, right. haven't, we haven't found him. Okay. Well, fingers crossed you'll, you'll find him. And, of course, one of our previous guests, Katie Manning, um, was in one of your productions, one of your many productions of Vera Girl in Asu. Was there a certain time where you were writing more than acting, or did you have to make choices to decide? I mean, a lot of people, there's a lot of unemployment, so... Well, every time I was out of work, I just sat down and wrote plays until I got a job again. But right. I always looked for work all the time. Mm-hmm. My own play went on in early 62, and... Um, I then started writing for TV. Mm-hmm. I got a t- quite a few string of TV yes. commissions and, and wrote for that. I didn't realise he'd written for Adam Adam and Lives. Directed, produced by Vajri Lambert. I think possibly the worst script I ever wrote was <laughs> Adam Adam and... Uh, I am the head of DZ4. Uh, DI6 is the nation's intelligence organisation. Uh, they keep an eye on our country's enemies. 
We keep an eye on DI-6. Would it be impertinent to ask who keeps an eye on you? It would. I see. In that case, may I inquire why you need my help, particularly? Uh, only you can perform this mission. You'll see why. Uh, look at that photograph. The, the faces of the uh, protagonists have, of course, been blanked out. God, have. Precisely. It's disgusting. Oh, it's worse than that. It's dangerous. The man in that photograph is a high-ranking government official. And the woman? It's not his wife. After Girl in My Soup opened and people were after the film rights, we had, my agent and I had a meeting with this film producer. When Soup was, we did the read-through for the rehearsals of Soup, I had done a big rewrite because I thought I'd write up all, the, all of the great social aspects of the play and all the rest of it that were there. It's a very feminist play, really. I don't mm. know whether you know, but it is. And I, uh, we read the play through with the cast and I had wrecked it. And I had to rewrite it practically an act a night, so they could start rehearsing something. It was so bad, my rewrite. So I was going home and working at night, and in the daytime, I was doing play school. And I was doing play school in the daytime as an actor. And Presenting? Yeah, yes, I was, I was on one of the original ones there. Wow! And um, <laughs> did it for two, two and a half, three years. Uh, anyway, um, and I got to the Friday, the Friday night, at the end of the week, I was absolutely exhausted. I'd actually dried on play school, because I was just... Non compass mentis for a moment. And was yeah. that live in those days? Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, good. No. Suddenly I got a call in the afternoon from Verity Lambert's officer. Have we got our script for Adam Adamant? <gasps> yes, I said, I finished it. It was due today. And I said, but my secretary's not well and it hasn't been typed up. Sorry. So they said, oh, that's how you, I'll let you have it next week. And they, okay, all right. Yeah. And I wrote it over that weekend. Um, doesn't it look it? <laughs> and they got their script. And oh, uh, anyway, so I come back to when Girl in My Soup was um, um, people were bidding for the film rights and so on. My agent and I have, were having this meeting with this producer, and he said, "Oh, Girl, it's, it's wonderful. It's like those mammalian um, comedies of the thirties from Hollywood. You know those ones with those with all those various people in, and it's got that style and that wit and all the rest of it. Nobody can do it anymore." And he was paying my he said, for instance, last night on TV, I saw this thing called Adam Adamant. He said, and somebody was trying to do it there. God, it was a mess. It was. <laughs> <laughs> My agent and I sat there quietly saying absolutely, absolutely nothing. Oh, that's wonderful. My dear Miss Jones, I thought you were at the British Embassy. I went there, but it was after hours, and they said come back on Monday. No wonder we lost the Empire. <laughs> Because one thing that struck me, from, both from Adam Adamant and also there's a girl in my soup, uh, we must remember the comedian Mike Myers, who then parodied all this in Austin Powers. And there, there, there seems to be um, hints of both. The only connection is Gerald Harper, who played Adam Adamant, later on did play the lead in Girl in My Soup in one of those Derek Nimmo tours that okay. went to the Far East. Right. But that's purely coincidence. And sniff. In terms of your acting, I mean, you know, you've, you've done an awful lot of stuff yourself. Rep, you mentioned earlier on, uh, a, a play for today. Uh, you were in The Brothers, which was a big watch in our household every Sunday night as a, a character called Simon Winter. I think I got the part because I played golf and could ride. 
right? <laughs> and I remember I entered the brothers sideways on a horse. The horse decided that's how he was going to enter, and that's how I entered. <laughs> and, okay. uh, um, I didn't particularly want to be in it. I had other plans and things, but it was a job that I did. And so after I'd done six, six episodes, and they said, right, you want to do more? I asked for so yeah. much money. They just said, no, thank you. Fair enough, then. Well, of course, you had other things to lean back on with your writing. You had two of your own series that you wrote. Oh, boy, oh, joy. Oh, do 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 Oh, boy, I'm lucky. I'll say I'm lucky. This is my lucky day. Now I'm in clover. The two series, we had Lucky Fella, which I think was the first one. This was your own show with David Jason, which has sort of been compared with Only Fools and Horses in some ways, only David Jason's playing the more dopey character. Yeah, well, in, in Lucky Fella, there's a story of two brothers living in Brockley, south-east London, mm. just down the road from where, wherever it is, and living with their mother, who wanted to get rid of them because she couldn't get a fella with two young men in the house. She wanted to start her life again. And they lived and worked out of the back of a van, not trading as they do in Fools and Horses, but um, plumbing, electrical work, any, any, doing any work, just doing work. And um, David Jason was playing the Nicholas Lindhurst part. Yes. Oh, Bernard. Oh, that's lovely. Turn round. Oh. Have you got a date with a young lady? Poor dear me, Mum, this egg's off. Poor. <laughs> no, it's not the egg. It's him. <laughs> it's you, you smell. It's male perfume. <laughs> but women wear perfume, not men. It's the show who's trying to catch you. It's a sort of sexual flypaper. It's a very nice smell, very tasteful. Now, tell me, what's she like? How many times have you been out with her? Is it serious? But when are you bringing her home? Are you going to marry her? If so, when? Do you think uh, John you... Sutherland was, was influenced at all? Or did you... I, I have no idea, no. and I'm not suggesting that he no. was, at least I think John Sullivan's work comes from, straight from his own head and heart. Yes. He doesn't need me to influence him. <laughs> and I think Fools and Horses was probably a better series than mine was. Yeah. I think mine was good, but uh, it was 13 episodes. They went out at 7 o'clock on a Friday evening, wrong time of day, because that's the way it was with London Weekend then. Um, uh, they, when they, you know, they, the week was chopped up for the various ITV companies. And unlike the BBC, you see, who puts, put out six episodes and then do six in the BBC Two and then they repeat them in the autumn yes. and then the new series yes. in the summer and the new series starts. Nothing, I just, 13 episodes just went out in the autumn of 76. Mm. I call it the unknown sitcom. Yes. And, uh, well, apparently you were offered to do another series and oh, you yeah, turned well, it down. I said, I'll do another series if you'll repeat the first. Oh. I said, I'm not going to do 13 more. Just to... I wrote 13 episodes in 26 weeks. Wow. That makes wow. you, that bends your brain. That's, um, and uh, I said, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to do some more if you do, a re do if you repeat. They couldn't repeat them. Mm. And after it was finished and done, they were unable to repeat them later when they wanted to because David had a stop on it and he mm. used his stop. So mm. it never got done. Mm. I think he was concerned about um, too much visibility on screen or something. He didn't want to be overexposed. Well, maybe, maybe the closeness to the other one. You see, of course, David, yes. David in Fools and Horses was playing the right part for him, mm. the Noel. Play, him playing the innocent one, it didn't fit him as well. Mm. He did it very, he's a good, mm. good comedian, yeah. good actor. He, he did it well, but 
he had to act that a bit, whereas he inhabits Del Boy, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And apparently for years, everybody knew they had this hot property with David Jason, but didn't quite know what to do with him. It was, it was quite a trial and error until they found yeah. his voice, I suppose, for the right part. The thing is that all the BBC series, you see, even, even um, Forty Towers mm. was a failure when it first went out. Yes. And, and um, not that mine was, it was the most it, top viewing on London Weekend, but London Weekend was having a torrid time. The head, the CEO there killed himself while I was there. Oh. Yeah, they had a really torrid time at that time. Anyway, because um, their viewing figures were so bad. Um, but mine came in at seven on a Friday when they mm. took over, and I was almost like the top one. It went downhill yeah. from then on. Oh, <laughs> but um, th- that never belonged on a seven o'clock on a Friday oh. evening spot. It was a grown-up thing for later. Did you ever pitch any of these sitcoms for the BBC, considering how well they look after their um, As it happened, um, I, I did pitch a, a different sitcom for the BBC, but long before that, it was turned down. Mm. And then after Lucky Fellow had gone out... I was doing something else and I didn't feel like doing a sitcom. Mm. And then before anything else happened, Humphrey Barclay, who produced it, Mm. came to me again to do another series, which was That's Love, which lasted for four years. That went through four series. But again, it's on ITV. It never never gets repeated. No. ITV comedies don't. Suddenly wonder what it's all about. Let's talk about That's Love. Jimmy Mulville, who's now a, a huge player behind the scenes in, in the industry, uh, Tony Slattery, apparently won the Gold Award for Comedy at uh, the Houston International Film Festival. So, I mean, you did very well with that. Yeah. Diana Hardcastle. That's it. She played the female lead, and very good she was too. And um, various, oh, Liza Goddard came in for one of the series, and mm-hmm. various other people. Lovely performance from Phyllida Law in playing the mother-in-law. In the first couple of series, I think it was perhaps considered quite sort of standard sitcom fare in terms of the relationships and all the rest of it. But from series three, we explore territory that perhaps hadn't been done in sitcoms before. The main chap suddenly has an affair, and this, this is a long-running thing. The, the brief I was given was to write a play about the sexual aspects of marriage. Mm-hmm. Then the first six were on that. Um, the second six were much more about... Um, a comedy and a marriage about the price of beef or mm-hmm. something else or day-to-day things and then on the third one we did six episodes or seven episodes whichever it was uh, of his being unfaithful to her mm-hmm. and how how it all worked out and the fourth six or seven episodes of her being unfaithful mm-hmm. to him mm-hmm. as it were in retaliation mm-hmm. and how that worked out first thing i have to say is i am not your property i never thought you were you locked me in like i was some kind it of was out of weakness not strength how was Bath? Ravishing. How was Tristan? <laughs> Not uh... Tristan was fine. Fine? Terrific. He was tremendous to be with. It made a refreshing change. And neither of us felt the need once to lock a single door. But this is quite interesting because most sitcoms don't evolve like that. I mean, you, 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 I, I find with most of them, there's a sort of understanding of where they're going to get from A to B and they might have something that might be reasonably life-changing. But it's, you get to the next one, and like Ronnie Barker, he's still in, in prison and all the rest of it. This is, for me, it's, it sounds quite different as a sitcom. I think by the time we got to the last one, you know, those two had gone through quite something. <laughs> it would be called, nowadays I think it would be called 
comedy drama or something, yes, I don't yes, know. Yes. To me, it, it is what it always was, what I recognised when I was um, in rep, mm. you know, domestic comedy. Only mm. domestic comedy was sex. Mm. That was the important thing. Mm. And what happens when sex rears its ugly head. You know. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. We have our music choice, which is called Desert Island Risks, and uh, you're allowed to, to, to pick any, any piece of music which um, either inspired you in some way, professionally or personally, or just because it makes your feet tap. Well, it's a terribly obvious choice, my piece of music. Mm -hmm. I think you'd have to describe my tastes as sort of trad serious or trad classical. Okay. I'm somewhere between Radio 3... <laughs> Classic FM, with a lot of Radio 2 thrown in, provided it wasn't written after the 60s. It's <laughs> yes, not my dad. Okay. And, and what, what, and well, when Ivor, my chum and I, went to go to Central for our uh, audition to, in order to go into the business, we came out from the Isle of Wight where we were working for the summer, and the audition was in the Albert Hall. Now, uh, Central School in those days was in the perimeter rooms of the Albert Hall. That's where it was situated. And we didn't know that. We just went to the Albert Hall. And um, as it happened, as I told you, we did the auditions and they told us there and then we were in mm. and we danced all the way back to the, um, to the uh, Isle of Wight that summer, happy, our lives had changed. But at the moment we walked into the Albert Hall, we walked through the front door, past the barriers, before anyone stopped us, and into the major auditorium. And at that moment, Flash Harry, Sir Malcolm Sargent, was just striking up this piece of music which met us and blasted us and it, this is an omen <laughs> and it was dun 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 which in the war as I remember as a child was the V for victory sign mm. of course and Beethoven's fifth so I think although I have other pieces of music that thrill me just as much as that that's got to be the one that reflects the change in my whole life <laughs> to SNS Online with my special guest, Terence Frisbee. Scratch and Smith. I wrote um, TV sitcoms because I got paid quite a lot of money for it and I was asked to, but my real love was writing for the theatre. Mm. 
and uh, sitcoms paid for things and uh, that uh, they had to. After I earned a fortune from soup, I got involved in the longest, messiest, nastiest divorce in history. Uh, uh, not so much nasty because of my wife, but because of all the lawyers involved and all the rest of it. And it involved a lot of chicanery, which ended up that in the late 60s, I learned a fortune by today's standards, millions, millions. And by the divorce started at the beginning of 70, and by the beginning of 71, I was bankrupt on paper. It was all to do with unpaid tax and being a tax exile and all that. And so there was such a mess made of it. I sacked all my lawyers and took on these other people, and my own lawyers as well, as well as the other lawyers, to sort out the financial mess. I was bankrupt on paper. I never actually went bankrupt, but I um, just kept one, one jump ahead of the bailiffs, as it were. Your first book, Outrageous Fortune, is that right? That's right. Yeah, well, it is all based on this. Yes. Well, I, I, in, in taking them on, I was 15 years at the litigation. I was a litigant in person. Now, anyone down at the law courts, you say litigant in person, you've got a huge notice on your forehead saying nutter. And so i just tell you my record. I had four high court actions, and I won them all, against counsel and QC and junior. I had three in the Court of Appeal, one, two, lost one, one in the House of Lords, split decision, mm. plus 50-odd interlocutory hearings. Now, that et up my time to try and save the terrible mess my life had got into, and so a great chunk went out of the middle of my creative life and I don't think I've written half the plays I should have. Now, that's a sad thing. And I wrote and one play. I, well, The Bandwagon was, was my third play, which followed Girl in My Soup, which was a massive hit on the continent, not in this country. And the play I had after that got slammed by the reviewers for a lot of reasons that are too long to go into. But just Read to... Outrageous Fortune, you'll see it. Yes. And then there was a big gap, and I vowed not to write another play. Mm. And I was doing all that stuff. And then I, finally I wrote Rough Justice yes. in the 90s, which... Yes again, was very successful around the world, not in this country, but Tom Conti's just yes. done two tours of it. My divorce litigation led to me being a founder member of Families Need Fathers because of the terrible way, the disgusting way I was treated over my then baby son and the games that were played with him by lawyers. It was used as a, as a tool in the, in the whole mess mm. and um, access to him and all the rest of it was just, just cruel and horrid. So I joined with three other disgruntled fathers and we formed Families Need Fathers. And I do think two of those three were, were nutters, actually. Uh, but I spent some years doing my job in Families Need Fathers of running walk-in talk-ins. And, and these walk-in talk-ins, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous. These guys would come in, you used to go and sit there and wait, and they'd come in, you have a room full of and they tell you their stories. I had some of the most heartbreaking and terrible stories I've ever heard from fathers who clearly just wanted to be fathers. You know, some of them were dodgy. Some of them were unstable. You could yes. see that too. But most of them were just guys like you and me who wanted to see their kids. And uh, having done that for some years, I stopped with great relief. I did it sort of like every sixth Friday or something. I thought, I've done that now. I've I mean, you did help get change in this country. This is a very real thing that moved, well, moved I, the law. I think it has changed for the better. Things have softened up. It's still the divorce thing is terribly unfair to dads if the mum wants to pull those strings, mm, yeah. uh, which her lawyer did want and she allowed him to do. Yeah. Uh, but it's better than it was, mm. is all I can say on that, Sure, Excellent stuff. 
Families Need Fathers, by the way, should not be confused with Fathers for Justice. Okay. Fathers for Justice were the warlike lot who climbed... Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, that's right, climbed, yeah. climbed this and did yeah. that. Families Need Fathers worked much more through the law and through okay. normal methods. That's, that, that's uh, important to clarify. And in the end, I wrote a long book about it, 456 pages. The libel readers got it, and he came back with 14 pages of libel objections, all of them about famous lawyers. And so Weidenfeld dropped it like a hot brick, so did everybody else. So I published it myself. Uh, I printed 2,000 copies, which were all sold. Mm -hmm. And oh, This it, is Outrageous Fortune, it's called? It's yes, that's right, Outrageous Fortune. And um, it, um, it's, it's done what it's done. It's got some lovely reactions. And it was my book to my son about why he was brought up as he was. Right. Um, and uh, Your son, of course, who's Dominic Frisbee, the stand-up comedian. Yeah, stand-up comedian, voiceover artist, and now financial expert. He's just written his second book. Scratch and Sniff. Clearly a talented family there. The book's called Bitcoin, by the way, so do check that out. Well, if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then do check out our Facebook page, SNS Online, whilst our Twitter account is Scratch and Tweet. Past shows are available by searching on SoundCloud for SNS Online and Mixcloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. But back to Terence now and a second music choice. Oh, I think we can allow him that. Another piece of music that means a lot to me and, and I love it for itself as well is um, Dancing Cheek to Cheek. Heaven, I'm in heaven. But that's because if I go right back to my childhood just before World War II, my mum and dad used to take us to the pictures we went and saw Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, who my mother and father worshipped and thought were the height of sophistication, which they were. Uh, and Mum and Dad also used to love ballroom dancing together. They had a lot of things not in common, I'm afraid, but that was something they both did and both loved. So every time I hear Dancing TGT, I see my much younger mother and father pushing off together and dancing, and it does fill my eyes with tears. Heaven. I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I seek, when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And the cares that hung around me through the week Seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest peak But it doesn't thrill me half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to go out fishing in the river or a creek, but I don't enjoy it half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Dance with me, I want my arm about you, the charm about you will carry me through to heaven, I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek 
to SNS Online with my special guest, Terence Frisbee. Let's talk about Kisses on a Postcard. <laughs> this starts off as a Radio 4 play, is it? Am I, am I right or am I going to get myself no, wrong again? It went, it went out on Radio 4 about 20 years ago now. Um, Different title. Was, yes. It was called Just Remember Two Things. It's not fair and don't be late. <laughs> which is the advice given by a middle-aged man, my you know, Uncle Jack. In the, it's very the, good advice. To the little boy. Yeah, it's a famous saying in the, in the <laughs> showbiz, isn't it? Mm. Italia Conti woman yes. used to do it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, th- that was Player of the Year, and uh, the BBC told me that um, it was the most popular play on BBC Radio Four for a, for a generation. Apparently, it played about ten times in the, in, in, the, in about three played, months or something. It played ten times on World Service and Radio yeah. Four. Mm. You know, um, then I adapted it into a stage play with music, mm-hmm. and we called it Just Remember Two Things, mm-hmm. and cut cut yes. it short. and then. The composer who had written the songs, we used World War II music plus new music, <clears throat> and the composer, Gordon, had written this lovely song for the boys to sing about how many kisses they should put on the postcard. Um, and this is Gordon Clyde, is it? Yes, Gordon Clyde. Um, he's now no longer yes, with us. Yes, And he'd written this number called Kisses on a Postcard, super number. And um, he'd said to me originally, he said, that should be your title, you know. And I said, no, no, it's not about mum. It's about the couple down in mm. Cornwall. It's there. But he was right and I was mm. wrong. So yeah. next time we did it, we called it Kisses on a Postcard. Right. And I called the book Kisses on a Postcard. Yes. Yeah. And the radio play, and I think you no, did... No, no, the radio play was already called... Of course, right. But then you did um, an, an audio adaptation of the book, which you, you oh, read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just reading that for... Blind for the blind and people like mm. that, yeah. Multitasking indeed. Um, and apparently Richard Stilgo was one of the people who came in after you uh, well, had after a vacancy. Gordon, after Gordon died, we were stuck a bit. Um, 
uh, and we knew we'd, from, from the first one when we put it on a, a play, it wasn't really quite a full-blooded musical, very nearly. And we were, as I say, we were using contemporary music and new music written by Gordon. And there were a couple of numbers that were not good, in particular for the Americans. And Gordon openly said, I can't write you black American music. Can't do it, not me. So we got a man called John Altman, a well-known jazz composer. He's written us two cracking numbers and another young composer for something else called um, Tom. Forgive me, Tom, I've forgotten his name for the moment. <laughs> um, and um, Richard Stilgo had done a lot of work with Jeremy James Taylor, who was the director, created the National Youth Music Theatre. Mm -hmm. And that was the connection there, because he's, he worked with children all his life. Mm. He got an OBE for his creation of the NYMT. So we did it sort of under the auspices of the Barnstable Theatre and the NYMT, with 20 children in it, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. And uh, connected with Jeremy was Richard Stilgo. And we were having lunch one day, and Richard came up with some ideas. And they were just... I mean, it, we're talking about a few lines, mm. but they were lovely touches from him that we mm. used and then developed afterwards. Mm. Mm. So, so Richard's got a very, very tiny part in it, okay. but, but quite significant. Core, tis lovely and dark, isn't it? Smells of resin. No one would ever know we were here. Do you want to play doctors? What's that? <laughs> Are you eight yet? No. I'm nearly 13. I'll be doctor first. If you like. You've got to take all your clothes off. <laughs> all of them? Then you lie down and I examine I say, what seems to be the trouble, Mr. Smith? The school doctor just looked him at my hair for nits. Do you want to play or not? No. You shy? Yes. So am I. You know girls and boys are different. Of course I do. I think so. Do you know why? It's to make babies. You put your whittler in a girl's twinkle and then she has a baby. Oh! True. It wouldn't go. I know. You don't get it. It doesn't work till you're married, I think. Anyway, little babies come out the end of your whittler all swimming. Oh. The husband has to lie on top of the wife and then it works. All husbands and wives do it. Your mum and dad did it for you. Shut up. The baby grows for nine months in a year and then comes out. Babies are too big though. I know. I don't get it. So the, the Amaris productions of this, I mean, are, are you still working towards this having a long West End run? <laughs> I wish, <laughs> I wish. I wish I could find the right person who would fall in love with it and do it. I think it could be an absolute smash. Mm. Mm. I've now written the, the stage play version of it with music. Mm -hmm. That is to say, not a full musical, with only 10 people in it, including the two kids. Mm -hmm. Not 22 children and 16 adults, but mm -hmm. seven adults and three kids. And those adults have got to be able to play and do the music and so on. Mm -hmm. I've now written that, so we'll give that a try out because it's so cumbersome mm -hmm. and um, it, it frightens off commercial management. I suppose it requires almost like a Matilda budget to put your original version on. Probably, probably more. Well, Terence Frisbee, thank you so much for uh, coming on Scratch and Sniff tonight. Uh, you get your celebrity goodie bag. This is my free. This is my your free. celebrity goodie my bag. Celebrity go Absolutely. I say, how wonderful. Uh, well, I like the look of that straight away. Bottle of champagne. Mm -hmm. What's this? 
Is this tea? It's coffee, coffee. Coffee. Mm-hmm. Okay, lovely. Keep and going, keep and going. it's a smelly candle, smelly candle. Oh, a smelly candle. I, I never use those, but I will. You don't now. have to. No, but I will. Okay. And I've got here French onion soup. Oh, there's, a, there's a surprise. <laughs> there's nobody in it. I there's, no, there's no girl in that soup, soup, but so we thought we'd have to give you some soup, so... <laughs> Very nice and lovely. And, and some chockies as well. Oh, heaven. Do you want one now? I'm, I'm okay, actually, but um, well, yeah, yeah. But no, uh, you, you save them. You, you enjoy them. Yeah. Well, but, that's, that's very generous of you. Thank you very much. No problem. Terence Frisbee, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. But if you last the night without me Fair enough, forget about me And I'll never try to see you And our thanks go to Columbia Pictures, London Weekend Television and, of course, Terence Frisbee himself. Our next show in the series features West End star, Emmerdale regular and BBC World Service champion, Sandy Walsh. But until then, from me, Mick Randall, goodbye. You see me no more, uh-huh, you see me no more.